0: Welcome to Bound for Justice, your weekly podcast that explores race, reconciliation, and social justice, one book at a time. Join us for a candid discussion about taking steps to create change in our lives and the communities we live in. And now your hosts, Rachel Rosman and Charlotte Wilson.
1: Okay, so we are back for week two Talking about books related to uh, diversity, racial racial reconciliation, sort of taking our walk down a path towards understanding and connectedness when it comes to racial issues. This is Charlotte Wilson. I'm Rachel Rosman. Uh, how's it going, Rachel? Good, good. Had a good week. Good. A- anything significant?
0: Um, no, not really. I'm working on a little project at school, and I've gotten more people interested in it, which makes me a little concerned. <laughs> because I was talking to someone else about it and I said I'm not really sure I should be the face of this project because it has um it's, it's kind of a partnership with an HBCU from the school that I work at and he said why because you're white and I was like no because I don't feel like I would be a good spokesperson at a college meeting with other people and he was like yeah that's probably that's probably true oh, no. so now I've got a few other people on board so I'm excited about that
1: well that doesn't mean that you can't be though right
0: yeah I'll mm-hmm. still I mean I want to get all the credit. I was gonna I just say, don't make, want to do all the talking. You gotta make sure you get credit for your work, right? Oh and I'm gonna have my name idea on everything. everything. Good. Yeah, good yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. But it always helps to have extra support,
1: right? And lots of people standing behind you to
0: get an idea. And people done. with like more prestigious jobs than me, because really not that my job isn't prestigious, it's amazing. Right. But just a job that has more clout,
1: I guess. Right. right. Sometimes in order to get stuff done, we have to borrow the equity of the people around us, right? the influence. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. I'm all about writing everybody else's coattails. Yes.
1: Hey, that's, that's (laughs) not writing coattails. That's leveraging the the social capital that you've built with relationships with people around you. Right. That's how I see it. I'm going to start using that. Yes. For sure. Social capital. How about you? Eh, Not much here. Just, you know, getting through a busy week at work and planning ahead for the summer. Summer's right around the corner with kids. So that always includes lots of extra hoops to jump through and making sure that you've got good arrangements and sort of thinking ahead so that you can get the most out of the warm weather in summer. I find myself continuously happy about the fact that I could just say I'm grateful for green grass and warm weather. So it brings, brings joy to me. So this week we are digging back in and fulfilling the promise that we talked about in our first week, which was committing to exploring racial issues diversity re- related issues one book at a time and just digging into books and we mentioned in our first week that we started a list of books that we were both interested in reading and we're just going through you know book by book and and using it as an opportunity to be led to understand a little bit more about diversity issues and and take what we pull from those books and reflect upon from those books and 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 hopefully uh, share that back to you and then turn those reflections into action where we can all do something to make a difference in our everyday interactions with other folks. So this week, we're discussing When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. And this book is written by uh, Patrice kahn with Asha Bandele. So Patrice Kahn-Kohlers, just a little bit of uh, background. Uh, she is one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, not not the only founder. There's There are a number of folks who really pulled together the, the group of folks that are responsible for that movement, but she is one. And this book really details sort of the background behind her motivation to get involved in that movement and talks a lot about her personal her personal experiences leading up to and following the establishment of the Black Lives Matters movement. If you're looking to understand how someone's feeling, all of the events in a, in a person's life, all the personal interactions and um, emotional moments that drove them or that influenced them towards the actions that they took as an organizer within the Black Lives Movement, particularly Patrice's story. This is the book for you. If you really, truly want to understand the heart and the spirit behind a person, I think this book gives it to you.
0: I think this gives a lot of background on why she was feeling the way she felt. And I think it really, I don't know if justified is the right word, but when you're reading it, you really feel what she's what she's saying like oh yeah I definitely would be interested in this or I would definitely this would definitely make me want to react or act to this and there were parts of this book that that tore me apart like I it was really I thought it was pretty intense in general black lives mattering yes and so I did like that aspect of it I know you and I had talked before about whether or not it was important to mention but I had issues not issues I found it interesting everything is in lowercase and so I thought with the Black Lives Matter being in lowercase, it does seem like it encompasses all of that more so mm-hmm. than just pointing or focusing on the movement, I mm-hmm. would say. Hmm. Um, so. I like that. Yeah. Thanks. It
1: is interesting sort of the literary tools or the approach that's used in the book. And the like you said, the purpose, some of the purpose of, of those things or the value that's delivered in the way that this book is organized. I do think of it as being, obviously, it's told in the first person, it's a memoir, But I almost think of it as being it almost feels like a meditation um, or almost does feel like a poem the
0: way that it's written. And, you know, I also compared it not in necessarily the the message, but the way it was presented, it was almost like the Bible in which there are it goes back like the same story is told from different perspectives Hmm. or the same time frame Mm -hmm. was told in different perspectives, which I sometimes struggled with because. I expect everything to be very chronological. And this was not that way. Mm-hmm. Like she would, you'd have a chapter and then it would end and you're like, okay, we're further in time, but then it would be back before the other chapter. And, um, so it was very much like the same time frames, but different aspects of her life maybe, or different things that were happening. And she wanted to focus on that, but keeping them separate.
1: Right. Kind of highlighting the complexity of everything that was going on around her during these different moments of her life. Yes. Yeah.
0: When I think of the Black Lives Matter movement, I am always sort of related it to like our generation's Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of surprised that that wasn't brought up that much oh. in this book. Like they don't really I mean, I think she might mention them once or twice, but I guess I expected that a little bit more because I know that ba- the Black Panthers always got a bad reputation mm-hmm. um, in the past and they really weren't. Yeah. Which is um, with a white lesson in history. The white uh, perspective typically has a very good, bad mm-hmm. um, binary binary. And it always plays up like people who try to defend themselves or people who are trying to go against the norm, even if it isn't with good intent, as the Black Panthers, I believe, were. Mm-hmm. Or um, I know a friend of mine was saying something about I was talking about Malcolm X before I really knew much about him. And I said, well, you know, what's his story? And someone said, well, I think that he was the opposite of Martin Luther King Jr. Like he was very violent, mm. whereas Martin Luther King Jr. was very, you know, good and peaceful. And, and so I think there's this aspect, this is a little bit off topic, so we'll, we shouldn't stick with this long. But, <laughs> but there's this idea that if somebody isn't taking what we give them, if somebody isn't being completely peaceful and trying to do things our way, that they're they're the wrong ones. They're mm. wrong and they're bad and they're violent. And we need to we need to suppress this. And I feel like that was really that's what happened with uh, the Black Panthers, Black Lives Matter, mm. um, Malcolm X, like anybody who really thought that they had the right to defend themselves or mm-hmm. the right for safety. Um, if we didn't feel that was right, or if that made us seem like like we were at fault, if it put any blame on us, like mm-hmm. with the Black Lives Matter, well. By us saying that Black Lives Matter is okay, are we saying that it's wrong for police officers to do that? Well, we can't do that. Like, that's not in our system. We can't say that the police are wrong. Mm -hmm. So clearly the other has to be wrong. Mm. By we, I was referring to, like, white culture in general and not necessarily that of us.
1: So you mean just the idea that the Black Lives Matter movement challenges I don't want to say this, not the sovereignty, but the, the authority well, that they, they're challenging the authority of law enforcement and they're challenging the assumption that law enforcement is always good and challenging the assumption that a law enforcement always protects you and is looking out for your best interest. I believe so. Okay. And that's very scary because that creates a lot of uncertainty. Well, well, and, 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 and again, it's a challenge of it. It's not, it's not the statement that they're always, they're always doing this.
0: It is very, that's the issue I think is that if you are against, if you're against police brutality, you are obviously against all police. Right. And there's, it's that one or the other, that binary again, like you have to be one or the other. As opposed to saying, no, what we're really asking for is accountability. Right. 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 Or to say that, you know, some people are, aren't doing things right. Right. And I think that Again, off topic, but when they say, well, there's a few bad apples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the good apples aren't really doing anything. They're not really turning in the bad apples as much right. because there's this culture within that group as well.
1: Well, and I think that's a good point because, you know, at the beginning moments of the book where she's really providing the background um, of her childhood and the experiences that she had as a young girl growing up in inner city LA, many of the experiences that she did have were very negative police interactions, whether it was her personally or what she experienced through the treatment that she saw from her brothers and other, other young black men.
0: I think we should kind of go into the situation with her brother, which completely destroyed me as a person while I was reading it. But it was just, it was so much to handle just with his experience. And I think that from my perspective, I mean, I, I vaguely remember the super predators uh, news mm-hmm. and that concept and idea. And I remember the three strikes, you're out rule. And yep, and I it didn't stand out to me. I just remember being like, oh, yeah, three strikes, you're out. You know, all these these hardened criminals on the streets, you know, they've gotten three chances. And I think this really put it into perspective with her brother had like three nonviolent crimes mm-hmm. and they were trying to put him in prison for life. Um, the Her brother had schizoaffective mm-hmm. disorder, Yes, and was not on his medication, and when he would get off of his medication, he would clearly not be about himself, I guess she She
1: mentions that that even at a very young age, um, I think looking retrospectively, it was clear that there were there were signs of the schizoaffective disorder that he was exhibiting. Um, they didn't necessarily know what it was because they weren't necessarily trained. I think uh, like a lot of us, I mean, if if you've ever um, managed or worked through a crisis with a loved one dealing with a mental health issue or you have yourself, we, you don't always see it at the time, right? Until someone starts to to point it out and and to actually name some of those symptoms, you're not even aware of what's really going on. I mean you don't necessarily have a sensitivity or an eye towards how to support a person when they're going through a mental health crisis like that. So it was really interesting to hear her sort of reflect retrospectively on the things that she she now understands to be part of that disease, but she didn't necessarily know as a young person seeing her brother exhibit those things, and and clearly neither did law enforcement officials.
0: Well, they either didn't know or they just didn't yeah. address it. Yeah, and, and I think that even now... In this day and age, middle class America, we don't always address mental health issues, and it's not anything that people really talk about going to the doctor for or treating. And so if you're thinking of somebody who doesn't have, you know, who's living paycheck to paycheck, who that's not really a big issue with them. I mean, major sicknesses are going to be the focus and not necessarily a mental health issue. It, it could, I mean, it could have gone on for a while being like, oh, he has, he has outbursts or You know, he's not acting like himself today and sort of pushed off to the side because that wasn't and it still isn't a huge issue unless it's like a violent act acting out Mm -hmm. situation. So I can see why it wouldn't be addressed immediately by the family.
1: So if we're sort of retelling the story that she tells in the book about her brother and the situation he found himself in, he had a number of run ins with the law, most of which were at a moment at which he was having an episode.
0: Or the one, once they started doing, didn't she talk about how they started doing stop and frisk in their Mm. neighborhood? And so he was just hanging out with kids. And then they would, like, it started with. um, At a very young age. Yes. Like, I mean, he would have been like 14, maybe something, where this all started to come out with um, stop and frisk and getting these kids off the streets and the war against drugs. and, Mm -hmm. And at that point, it started, they started having this interaction with the police. And I think that's sort of when she started seeing all of that it stuck with her that there was an issue or there was something going on because she only saw her brother hanging out with his friends and then being down on the ground and the police giving him trouble. And, and, um, I think then he got, he'd gotten in trouble for something. I forget what There, first there was. A, was.
1: I, I think the, the final precipitating moment that was most critical was, um, a fender bender
0: where he was, do you remember that? Yeah, he was, he was older than the, wasn't he or not? I was thinking that there was a fender bender and then he was, not on his medication he was having an episode and he yelled at the other lady or Mm -hmm. like made a threatening comment to her she
1: felt threatened i think she she hit him i think oh maybe probably let's see if we can find it oh okay so there are there are a number of um moments that she shares with regard to her brother and his run-ins with the law um I'm looking at one specifically that starts on page 112. The paragraph starts, Monty had come home from his first prison bid in 2003. And as we learned quickly, frighteningly, there was no infrastructure that existed to help secure either his re-entry or his mental health. Whatever was going to happen would happen because of us, the family, and our capacity to manage severe mental illness. We learned quickly that intervention was either us alone and without medical professional support, or it was the police. The brutal memory of Monty's first break, during which we learned that there were no social services or safety nets for my brother, hung all over our heads like a sword. We lived alongside the steady buzz of anxiety. And I think what struck me, and I, uh, you know, I think a lot of us have heard just in general, regardless of whether or not. You have run-ins with the law, though. Obviously, if you're if you're managing a severe mental illness, your likelihood of having those legal run-ins are much much higher. Um, but even in the absence of those legal issues um, or you know police interactions, the idea of finding good mental health services is just difficult. So you take that. That fact alone, regardless of your race, regardless of who you are, regardless of whether what, what healthcare access you have or in health insurance you have, but then you put on top of that an economic disadvantage, and racial prejudice, and a police record, you're just asking and for experiences it. Experiences in prison, I mean, right? The trauma, trauma that
0: you've experienced,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it, it, I think what struck me is the amount of work and the number of people. That were involved in holding him together and keeping him as much as they could. They couldn't control all of it, but finding ways to sort of circumvent this system that was really intended to see him fail.
0: And I think that something that I felt in the book, even in the in the first part when she talks about her her father, who is the biological father, he had been in and out of jail a couple mm-hmm. times and was really struggling with a drug problem, and then with Monty struggling with um, the mental health issues is that they both seemed like they were trying so hard, like they wanted, they wanted to do the right thing. And they wanted to have things work out for them. And they didn't want this to happen again. They were really trying to get on the right path. And there were just so many things against them. Yeah. And it, it broke my heart, because, I mean, they're just, they just didn't have access to anything that would help them. And and I don't think people necessarily like with Monty, especially I don't think people wanted to see him like they wanted to see him as the crazy guy or they wanted, mm. you know, we can imprison him and then we don't have to take care of all these other issues. Right. Whereas the family and and the individual himself were trying so hard every time something happened, it, it tore me apart. Mm-hmm. They have a the courtroom scene, which I won't even read because I cried so hard reading it. So I'm not going to read the actual words in the book. <laughs> maybe you could give like a synopsis because I think that that is probably one of the most powerful moments in the book. Where he was, they hadn't been medicating him in prison. And so he was supposed to come in and the whole family, like, well, Patrice and her mother were there and I don't know, the other brother. So he had been arrested. He was having an episode. He was in he was in jail and was mm-hmm. having his... Court arraignment. Yeah, okay. Court arraignment. And... He wasn't there when they first got in. So they're waiting and then they hear kind of a ruckus, I believe, and they bring him in and he's strapped to a like a gurney mm-hmm. and his face is covered. He's and, muzzled. Yes. And he's he's just not I mean, he's drugged. I believe he's,
1: he's having he a like, man,
0: basically having a manic episode before
1: the presence of a judge for which he's supposed to be arraigned and be entering some sort
0: of plea or understanding what the next step is. And the judge even was like, I don't even know why you guys brought this guy in here. Take him back out. And then he screams for his mom. And that killed me. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he, it it didn't appear as though he had any sort of
1: presence of mind or clarity about what was going on around him. But he knew enough to know that his family was there and his family was present. And yeah. I mean, it's it's powerful. I agree. It's um but I, and that's why I think is one of the most, most powerful moments of the book because, you know, there are lots of things that separate us. We, we work different jobs. We live in different places of the country. Some of us are in cities. Some of us are in rural areas. Um, some of us are white. Some of us are black. But I think every single one of us have been touched by someone who's, who's, who's had a moment of um, where you're uh, an emotional breakdown. And um, I think we can all connect with that. And I think that's one of the most amazing things that she does in this book where. Maybe you don't understand Black Lives Matter. You don't understand why there are people in the streets calling for accountability for police. But you can understand what it means to see a family member in pain and to not feel like there's anything you can do about it.
0: And I think she kind of acknowledged that other people were very dehumanizing about that, like Mm -hmm. other people didn't get that. And they they treated him like an animal um, and apparently viewed him as an animal. And it was. I was that contrast in the courtroom scene where they're just hauling him in and he's strapped right. down and they've got him drugged and then his family is sitting there. And that contrast between people who love him so deeply and people who treated him with such disregard yes, was, um, it, made, it made an impact was, on me. I'm yeah. crying actually, not thinking about <laughs> it. Uh, the other thing
1: that was shocking too was the response from the public defender. That was supposed to be responsible for him in that yes. moment. And it was clearly someone who was unprepared, really didn't didn't even necessarily have the training or the ability to manage through that kind of situation. And Patrice is sitting there basically saying, like, what the heck is going on here? And this
0: guy's kind of shrugging his shoulders. And I, I forget what other book I read. Well, we'll probably talk about it some other day. <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably reread it, um, where they talk about how overwhelmed the public defenders are and how they have all of these cases. And it's just Unreasonable to expect them to get through all of this, and I think it, it's easy for them to disregard. Like, oh, this is an easy case. This guy has mental health issues, or he's violent. And mm-hmm. look at him! My gosh, they have to strap him to a gurney to even get him in here. Let's just get this one out. Let's put him in jail. Obviously, a super predator. Um, right. Very violent. Yeah. 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 Put him in jail. We're done with this one now. Let's go into my next case. Um, nothing to see here, people. Move along. Mm-hmm. Like, I was planning on bringing it up later, but in this book. There were so many instances of other shootings and other deaths that I wasn't even aware of. There were a few right in a row. And it was the point you're making, though, is it's not just a single
1: incident. It's not just happenstance. It's not a freak occurrence. The one thing that the Black Lives Matter movement has done and what Colors does in this book over and over again is show with multiple incidences and multiple stories that this is a Pattern that's happening over and over again. This is not chance. This is a pattern. This is a consistent thing that's happening in, and really undergrids the idea that there's a system that's really working
0: against certain folks within our society. I, I don't know if I told you about the time that I had to go to the, a nearby small town police department because um, an elderly woman thought I stole her handbag or her wallet. And I remember being with the police and they were playing good cop, bad cop. And um, they brought up that I was a single mom. I'd probably want to steal from an old lady to, to provide for my child. Um, why would I want to do that? Let's just give this lady her stuff back. And I remember trying to think through every question, like, how are they trying to turn this around on me? To so by the end of it, I was like, why did I steal this lady's purse? <laughs> like, what was I thinking? I'm such a jerk. Where would I have put it? And I'm trying to think of if I brought it you know, a folder in or a bag where I would have accidentally set it near this and just grabbed everything at once. And, and I had, I was so confused by all of this. And at the time I was an adult, you know, I, I didn't, I don't have a record. I have speeding tickets, but no real, this is like a violent never record. Been arrested. Yeah. I've never been arrested. And I was, I was fairly well educated to where I could think through their questions and see that they were trying to turn things around on me. And At one point, they said, well, we're going to let you go home today. And I thought I didn't realize that was an option, like to not let me go home. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was stopping by in the middle of my work day Mm -hmm. because, oh, we'll just get this all sorted out because I had that much faith in the justice system. And that kind of almost kind of broke it for me where Mm -hmm. I was like, here I am. I didn't do anything. I have no history like to close the story. The police went in to apparently secure the scene a couple weeks later, and the lady's wallet had just gotten pushed back farther in the drawer. And so I was off the hook. They called to let me know. And I was actually at a job interview, and they were like, well, good luck getting the job. Everything's okay. Bye. So I imagine my case, and then I try to put that with, what if you have had a couple run-ins with the police? What if you don't have that education or that comprehension of what's going on? You know, you're panicked already. They aren't giving you the respect that they might be giving somebody else, um, and they're trying to confuse you. and so one other, th- one
1: other observation that I had from reading through the experiences that Patrice had, um, her family had, um, there were there were a couple of things that that struck me. and she she mentions this particularly with her father, her biological father, Gabriel, and some of the challenges that he had moving in and out of. The criminal justice system, some of the challenges that he had dealing with an addiction, and how you know the the ups and downs of that, whether he was present or absent in her life, whether he was in jail or out of jail, whether she was connected to her biological family or not depending on his absences. But as he walked through sort of that those moments in his life and those ups and downs, I know he he held very closely to um, the twelve step program for Alcoholics Anonymous and the idea of personal responsibility which she challenges a lot in this book in terms of understanding where does personal responsibility begin in, in, and how do you reconcile that with a system that's not necessarily designed to support you or in many ways is designed to see you fail. I know that's, that's sort of a, uh, a contradiction or, or I think, a, a, yeah, it's a contradiction. It's a contradiction that I think a lot of people have to try to figure out sort of how to live with. How do you, how do you live in these two worlds where... I'm a strong proponent of personal responsibility, but at the same time, understanding the systems that uh, systems around you that maybe make it a little bit harder to see you succeed and take responsibility for things in your life and understanding how that just understanding that there may be other forces around you that make it a little bit harder to to work within
0: that that idea. And I think when people go to prison or have that record then there is such a disadvantage with getting a job, getting government assistance. Like, it's hard to get out and get out of a cycle of that because you get out and then you can't find a job. And do you
1: remember the moments in the book? Her brother, her brother comes out of prison and he can't stay with his mom. Yes. Because she's in Section 8 housing. He's a felon. Therefore, he's not allowed to live with her.
0: Mm -hmm. And it was just such a... I mean, it places people at such a disadvantage and then it like reprimands them when they don't make it like, well, you've, you know, you're on probation. Now you got caught doing this. So you're going back into jail. It was like, well, you really see that going into play. And I think that you sort of know about it in the back of your mind generally. But then when you really see how it's going through and you're like, man, this guy was trying. He was trying so hard or this kid with Monty, he was trying so hard and he wanted to make this and he didn't want to be a burden on anybody. But coming out, there was nothing he could do. And he's trying to get little jobs. And, um... and again,
1: so there you go again, that contradiction between, OK, I'm supposed to demonstrate personal responsibility, but even in my greatest attempts to demonstrate responsibility to go out, to try and find a job, to try and find a place to live, to be a responsible citizen, I'm continually met with roadblocks that prevent me from doing what I'm supposedly supposed to be doing. So at what point do you throw up your hands and go? "Mm." We could obviously spend a long time going through the details of this book. We've only touched upon a few of the incidences in the book. There's a whole lot more that she um, goes into and she talks about from a personal perspective. I I do want to say that one big takeaway for me from the book, this is a memoir. She's she's telling these very personal stories and. I think she's helping us understand the background behind her motivation to be a part of and to really initiate the Black Lives Matter movement, be one of those folks. But she also is very open about her own personal struggles, her own interpersonal relationships that succeed and fail, and all of the things that that are happening in her personal life as she's becoming a part of this movement. I appreciated that because I think a lot of times, especially when we see people are at the forefront of movements and who are really making big moves and making big strides and making changes, we have a tendency to see them as one dimensional individuals who, you know, are doing big things and they probably have it all together and they're perfect and they know how to do everything just right. And the fact of the matter is she she shows her humanity in this book and that, yes, she was she was trained for many, many years, well before Black Lives Matter ever showed up. But she was also very human, and she also moved through life and dealt with all the things just like the rest of us. And I think that's a lesson to us, to help us understand that we don't have to have everything perfectly lined up in order to make a difference and to do something that can that can be significant. I always appreciate seeing the humanity and the realness of people through the sharing of their memoirs. I loved what you said about someone who's maybe feeling a little challenged or might not necessarily have the most positive opinion of what black lives matter means to them. um, This would be a great book to sort of uh, allow yourself to be challenged or reconsider a different perspective. This would be a great place to start. Yes. And it's told in such a way that it's beautiful. And it's, it's quite frankly, it's easy to read. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking, but beautifully written all at the same time. Yes. All right, so that's a wrap of our review of When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. My name is Charlotte Wilson. And I'm Rachel Rosman. Be sure to join us next week where we bring you the review of another book centered around race, diversity, and social justice issues.
0: Thank you for listening to Bound for Justice. Join us next week for another conversation about creating change in our lives and the communities we live in.